Peter chapter 3 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter has written um, for three reasons. This is his second letter to the church at large. He's written 2 Peter chapter, or excuse me, 1 Peter. I get those kind of words mixed up, but in 1 Peter, he wrote the first letter to a group that was scattered abroad. But 2 Peter is written to essentially every believer that will listen. And, and so Peter has written for these three reasons, and I think I have four, to encourage them to keep growing in their faith. As believers, we are never to be stagnant. Now, that's not just something to add to your list of things to do. What he said is, as you will abide in me and I abide in you, you will produce fruit. You will be growing, fruitful believers. So to encourage them to keep growing, he instructs them in specific ways. But then he also writes this letter to tell them goodbye. And this is not like, hey, I'll see you next week, goodbye. This is, I'm getting ready to be poured out and completely, utterly wiped out for my faith and for sharing Jesus. And so because of that, I have a few things I want to say to you before that happens. It's his last breath, if you will, but it's in writing. And he writes it to say goodbye and to leave them a reminder of the truth that they've heard that they've believed, and that they've actually established their lives upon. I don't know about you guys, but there are some times where I read something in Scripture or I hear another believer share testimony, and I go, you know what? There was a day where that truth was very prevalent in my life, and now it's kind of cooled off. And I want to point out something is that we all go through seasons where we are on fire, and we also go through seasons where we go, I remember when. Have you ever watched uh, Napoleon Dynamite? There's a guy in there by the name of Uncle Rico, and his whole thing is he's caught up in the past. I remember remember back in 82, man, things have been different if coach would have taken me off the bench and put me back in the game. We'd have gone to state. And then there's another scene where he says, he he goes, back in the day, I could have thrown a football over them hills. And he's like looking at a valley like we have outside of our window here. And I'm just picturing him going, back in the day, I could throw a football over them hills. And I'm like, no, you couldn't. (laughs) But if your faith is like that, where you're constantly saying, I remember back when, remember that God is a God of today. Yesterday's over. You know, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Your past that's bad doesn't matter. Your past that's good doesn't matter. Today is the acceptable day to humble yourself and follow the Lord and to see what he wants to use you for today. He's not put you on the shelf since 82. He actually has things that he wants you to use you to accomplish today. And then he also writes to them to warn them about false teachers. And and here's the hard part about false teachers. False teachers actually say all the right words, they dress all the right way, and they make you feel pretty comfortable. That's what we talked about last week. But then he also writes to ensure them that their hope in Jesus is actually not in vain. It's not worthless. And so they faced three objections. You probably remember this guy from last week. He is scoffing at you. He is rejecting your faith. And as he looks at you, he has three things, according to Peter here, that he's saying to you. He's saying, number one, the apostles were just teaching fables that they heard from their parents. 
And none of that stuff is actually true. These are cunningly devised fables used to keep you under wraps in this religion so that you won't do things they don't want you to do. They're trying to control you. Um, but actually what you find out is that the false teachers were the ones trying to control them and, and have power over them, and yet they were not set free from their own sin. But then another objection is there won't really be a day of judgment. This is what they would teach. There's not really going to be a day of judgment. Uh, God's all about love, and he doesn't judge anyone. As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. This was a prevalent teaching. It doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. God knows your heart. How many times have you heard that? Maybe you're somebody that said that. And here's the reality. God does know our hearts. <laughs> he teaches us that our hearts are wicked. We can even deceive ourselves. We can justify anything. And so the reality is, is that it's not false, but it's also not the way to live. The, the presence of Jesus and him knowing our hearts should cause us to want to live in a way that pleases him. And then another thing is uh, the, they would teach that Jesus isn't really going to come back. Uh, that's just an old wives' tale. We're more sophisticated now. Now we know better. We have technology. We know where the universe came from. We've used the, you know, our Sputnik satellites and all these other things. We got Google. You know, we know better. We know the origin of life. But that also is uh, garbage. And so we're going to talk about what those scoffers were saying. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says this, Beloved. Now, I love that he calls the church this because more than my followers, more than uh, you know, my servants, he says, Beloved. He wants the church know, want to know more than anything about the Lord himself. He loves you. When was the last time someone told you, or when was the last time you believed that Jesus loves you? He loves you. And I, I think this is important because the Apostle Paul, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and, and I think many of us would go, what made this man so diligent to go and to plant churches and love people and encourage people that hated him and be willing to be stoned and get back up and go back into town and, and be shipwrecked and to pray for his enemies. And what he said in Corinthians was, it's the love of Christ that drives me. It's the love of Christ for me personally that compels me to live in this manner that I do. So maybe your motivation has not been the love of Christ, but that you love Christ. And I'll tell you what, that only goes as far as you feel like loving Christ. And not every day do I wake up and go, I just want to go for you. I just love you so much. Some days I wake up and I, I feel like I failed all day long or all morning long. It could be an hour into the day and I could just feel like a complete failure. And then I have to remember the gospel that Jesus loved me while I was still sinning against him while I was still causing and doing the sin that actually made it so that the wrath of God would have to be poured out on him, nails driven through his hands, him crucified and suffocating on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Wow, he loves me. Apparently it doesn't matter about my performance, but it also drives me to make me want to do better. Not because I have to anymore, but because I just want to. I've been loved. So he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second letter, this epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, or another word would be their own desires. They're led by their own desires. And he says, saying, they'll be saying this, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So I went a verse ahead. But in the first three verses there, he says some very important things. He's stirring up your pure minds by way of reminder. Teachers, we've already been over this, but reminder is the best way to teach things. Repeating things over and over again. I cannot tell you how many times I've said after my kids come out of the bathroom, did you wipe your butt? It seems obvious to us as adults. And did you wash your hands? And every time I get this blank stare like, oh yeah, am I supposed to do that? Yes. And I can tell you that I've said it 1.2 billion times. This is not a new commandment that I give to you. you know. And so he reminds them. Why does he remind them? Because they forget. He stirs up their pure minds. Now, interestingly, I don't know about you, but I, I read this and I go, I don't know that I have a pure mind. But Paul instructed concerning this in Philippians chapter 2. He kind of wrote about this pure mind that Peter's referring to. Philippians chapter 2, Paul instructed the disciples, the, those that were following Christ. He says uh, in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have been given the mind of Christ, but he also instructs here, he says, let this mind be in you. Let this steering wheel, let this engine compel you. Let God's mind within us actually instruct us and lead us. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, But he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave. And coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also exalted him given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and of those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this mind that's supposed to be in us is a mind of humility, and it's a mind that's willing to die to itself, die to its own will. And so he says, I stir up your mind, your pure mind. This is a mind that we've been given. Not according to us being pure to start with, but God purifying our minds as we submit our will to him. He makes all things new. So he says here, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminding you and that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. 
He stirs them up by what the prophets taught. That's why we study the Old Testament. It's important to see that Jesus is actually revealed in the Old Testament, although until we have the New Testament, Jesus was really kind of concealed. He's in there, but it's through mystery and through... But the New Testament comes in, and it basically is the decoder ring for the Old Testament. It reveals Christ and all the types and the shadows. He was revealing to them what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. But in chapter 3 here, he's, he's saying, we want you to be mindful of these words. Now, how many times have you heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt? It's not true. Words are important. How we use our speech. God created the heavens and the earth with words. Words are powerful. And so he says, I'm reminding you of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets, which is interesting because Paul the apostle actually said, whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are helpful, think on these things, meditate on them, ruminate on them, make that what clouds your thoughts rather than your own flesh. What people have said about you that's not true, lies. I think it's important because what you fill your mind with affects who you are. And so as we are reminded of the words of the prophets, he says also of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Those of us who heard from Jesus were teaching to you. Jesus said, freely you've received, now go and freely give. So Peter's still doing this. And he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. So scoffers are going to come. So you need to be stirred up by what Jesus has said so that when the scoffers come along and go, well, that's not true, you can be armed with the truth to go, yes, it is. I've had it confirmed. And so here's how the scoffers will speak. We read this last week in chapter 2, verse 12. And I have for you there the Muppet guys. I don't remember their names. Saw a couple of you guys chuckling, but those guys are hilarious. They're just up there mouthing everybody the whole time. What is it about us that really likes to see people get mouthed? They're funny, but they're just grumpy old codgers. Um, They're verklempt. You know, they're, they're just, get off my lawn, you know, that guy. Anyway. Scoffers speak evil things that they don't about, they speak evil of the things they don't understand. That's what he said in verse 12 last week. The scoffers will come along and they'll speak evil about things that they don't fully understand. Be careful that you don't believe them. They don't even know what to believe. They're telling you what to believe. Don't give ear to them. Scoffers won't have any crowd around them. If they don't have a crowd around them, they can't scoff. Verse 18. They'll speak great, swelling, but empty words. And they'll allure their followers by dangling what they desire before them like a carrot. They'll actually allure people to follow them by playing around with their desires. Now, James says that when we have desires in our hearts and opportunity meets that desire, that's when sin conceives and it brings forth fruit, which is death. And so... Lord, change my desires so that the scoffers, what they have to say won't even be appealing to me. But then in verse 19, they'll promise freedom. 
Hey, you can be free from all these religious trappings, they'll say. And it'll sound really great. But look at their lives because they won't be able to live in freedom from their own vices. Their own sin will overrun them constantly. Don't listen to them. If someone comes along and says, hey, you can be set free by following the way I'm doing. They won't say that, by the way. That's too obvious. They'll say, you don't need all that. And yet they'll be overrun with a sinful lifestyle and there are consequences even if they aren't right then. So look at their lives. Pay attention to the spring that you're drinking from. Pay attention because if there's bitterness and there's evil seeking, that's not God's wisdom. That's what James says. And number four I have for you there. Look at how they live. In chapter 3, verse 3, they will mock the truth so they can live according to what they desire. What they're really doing is they're saying, that's not true. And they're not even trying to lead you many times. They will if you're not careful. But they're mocking the truth so that if they make it seem untrue, they'll feel more comfortable in their sin. That's what scoffers do. Ironically, sometimes I think we're really rough on false teachers, and we should call a spade a spade. But ironically, Jesus loves scoffers. I was a scoffer. Many of you were scoffers. That's not true because we wanted to continue in darkness. That Jesus is the light of the world. He came in. He wasn't received because men and women love darkness rather than light. We like our sin. The Bible teaches that sin is pleasurable for a season. But when the season's over, <laughs> the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's not worth it. And so, ironically, the truth that they mock and they scoff is actually the knife that God is handing them. He's provided to them as well as us in order to set them free from the sin that enslaves them. They're enslaved by sin. They're preaching to you that you can be free from this religious trappings. And in the meantime, they're enslaved to sin and they have the truth that can set them free right in front of them. And they deny him. Man, I pray, I pray that that's none of us. That the truth that could set us free, that we have, that's been revealed to us in a person of Jesus Christ would not be something that we scoff at, allow to sit there. I cannot tell you how many years I was enslaved to specific sins that I don't even want to mention right now, that I had a Bible sitting on my desk while I was at college. And I could have been free years earlier. And I wasn't. I rejected Christ, which meant that my freedom was rejected from me. It was my own fault. And so here's what they'll teach. Verse 4. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, meaning our ancestors, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, he says, they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So scoffers will teach, or at least they'll question the word of God. 
They'll say, did Jesus fulfill his promise? Didn't he say he was going to come back? Where's he at? Where's he been? What's he doing? And what he's really asking is the same thing that the snake asked Eve in the garden. Can you really trust God? I think he's withholding something good from you. Something that you can obtain on your own if you just bypass him. Questioning God's motives is the most slippery slope you can be on because he does truly have our best interest. But they will ask, can he really be trusted? Which leads to, does he really even exist? Or if he does exist, does he really care about you? God doesn't care about you. He's got his own stuff going on. And they start to compare him to sinful men who really don't care about you, who got their own stuff going on, who don't have time for you, who are only looking out for number one, because that's our natural way. And in the meantime, they question the God who cares about you deeply. Maybe he isn't real, and we need to take a look at what we really know. So exhibit A, he says, since our ancestors died, all things continue as they always have for all time. And that's really the the point of just essentially saying that God is a watchmaker. And this is the idea of deism. And the watchmaker makes a watch, he winds it up, he puts it on somebody, he walks away. He's no longer concerned about whether or not it keeps working because he's done his piece. But we know better. God is still involved in creation. Uh, and, And what's funny is he says they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So he's talking about how the judgment of God has happened in the past, that God didn't just wind it up and walk away. He wound it up. He breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. And then when they became so wicked that he could not anymore allow it to continue, he actually purified the world. He gave it a bath. And he drowned the sin-sick world And he destroyed all of mankind except for eight people. We read that a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. He he purged the world of sin, except he left eight people. So obviously he left a little bit. He was gracious. And yet what we find out is that they willfully forget who created the heavens and the earth. Willfully. We're going to look at that word in a minute because it was eye-opening for me. That's accounted in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. They willfully forget that the world, the earth, was flooded in judgment. Now, if you go to the Creation Museum, there's this eye-opening exhibit when you walk in. And Creation Museum's in Kentucky somewhere. I can't tell you the town. But there you walk in, and it's this very scientific place put on by Answers in Genesis. And as you walk in, they have this a scene that you've seen in history or in science books. It's essentially an archaeologist, and he's dusting these bones, and he's looking at evidence. Now, science is built upon evidence, but there's also faith involved in science. See, what happens is we have predetermined assumptions in our mind about what we're going to find when we go looking for things. That's why sometimes we can't find our keys because we have predetermined that they're either in this place or this place or this place. And when they don't show up, we lose all hope because they couldn't possibly be anywhere else. But oftentimes that's wrong, right? It's the same thing about 
creation. We look at the same evidence as believers. If you're an archaeologist, I don't think there's any in here, but archaeologists that are believers look at the same evidence as archaeologists that are atheists or agnostics. And they come to two entirely different conclusions. Why is that? Because they've already willfully decided, both sides, by the way, what they're going to find. And so they dig the same hole, they're right next to each other, get the same bone, and they both go, "Uh uh-uh, it's this, Uh uh-uh, it's that. But here's the deal. We can look at archaeology, we can dig up these bones, we can dig up these creatures, and if we've already decided that it's not even possible the entire world's been flooded, then we're going to decide or deduce something else from our findings, right? And so that's what they do. They willfully forget who created the heavens and the earth. They willfully forget who flooded the earth in judgment. They've already decided that never happened. That's a fairy tale. And who promised to never again flood the world and judge it by water. How do we have that promise? Genesis chapter 9, verse 13 through 17 says that every time that the clouds gather and it rains and the sun shines through it, you're going to see a what? A rainbow. And we think of it as this cuddly thing, but what God said is, I'm going to hang up my bow. His bow is his instrument of judgment to pierce through and kill and judge the world for sin. It's a bow like bow season starts today. You don't use a bow to snuggle it. It's sharp. It's dangerous. It has the potential to kill and take life. God used his bow to judge, and when he said he would give this as a sign, it's like he hung that thing up, deer season's over. My judgment, I'm no longer going to judge the earth by flooding it with water. But they willfully forget these things. That's why if you talk to many Christians, they're divided on Genesis. Whether or not it's allegorical, there really was an Adam and an Eve, or if, it's, or if it's an allegory about mankind being created. There's an attack on it. Why? Because these things are foundational to what we believe about God, because if he didn't really create, what else is allegory? What else isn't really literal? And we start becoming, we, we start to judge between what's real and what's just figurative. And yet I believe a literal interpretation because of passages like this, because of Jesus quoting Genesis, and, and so many other places. So <clears throat> they willfully forget. So I have there for you a picture of a cute little girl with the bottom lip pouted out. You can't see it very much because I put a million words. But on the right, I have a picture that says, my way. I willfully choose my way. Willful, the word means obstinately and often perversely self-willed, deliberately or intentional. That's Merriam-Webster. So I looked up the word willfully, and it says, with the intention of causing harm, deliberately with a stubborn and a determined intention to do as one wants, regardless of the consequences. And you've seen this. Many of you teachers are experiencing this right now. Everybody's talking about the full moon, Friday the 13th, and it's all crazy, right? Children are willfully deciding, I don't want to do what you want me to do. 
And because of that, they know the consequences, but they're doing it anyway. But what it says about these scoffers is that they willfully forget. So it's not an accident, is my point. They have made a decision, I'm going to reject God, and there are consequences for that. The Proverbs actually says, the fool says in his heart, no, God. Now, some of your translations will say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But what he's really saying is, no to God. And so what's interesting about this is they forget the truth on purpose to their own judgment and the judgment of those who believe and follow them. Now, this is interesting because we have a choice. One of the most dangerous things that God placed in you and I is the freedom to choose what we do with our will, our ability to say, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1, because Paul does a great job distinguishing between the complicated and the simple. Romans 1 verse 16 says this, Paul writing, who by his own admonition used to be a 100% self-willed man. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So if you notice here, he's not ashamed of Christ and the good news that Jesus came to save. And he's not ashamed of it because in the good news, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for all who will believe. It's for all, but there's this disclaimer, if you will, if you will will believe. And so we have the power to decide whether or not to believe and to receive the consequences of that belief or unbelief. But then in verse 18, he says, but the wrath of God is revealed also from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now that word suppress I have for you at the bottom is to forcibly put an end to, to restrain, to prevent the dissemination of information. You might think of suppression, you might think of a a rifle. You can get a suppressor, isn't that what it's called? Where you screw it onto the end or you attach it and it suppresses what? The sound. It's a silencer. We call it a silencer. But there are many who know the truth and willfully silence it. They are trying to stop the dissemination or the passing out of good news. So would you call them good or bad? Bad. But they willfully do this. Now, he says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is revealed in them. For look at this, God has shown it to them. All men are without excuse is what he's going to write. What about the person in some country in the middle of nowhere that's never had a Bible? What it says here is, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, did you know that we are born with this intrinsic belief in God? And that it's actually indoctrination that causes children and eventually teenagers and eventually adults to stop believing in the one that created them. People are not born as unbelievers. People are born believing that there is a God. And if you drive down your subdivision or down your street and you see a house that's built there, you never go, wow, look at that thing that accidentally happened. You always go, look at that. Somebody spent time and effort or they didn't, right? But you walk around and you see these things that are built and everything about those houses or those playgrounds or the school or your place of business says somebody thought through this. So creation is no different. You should be enamored with the beauty of creation and go, wow, it all works together. And even with us trying to destroy it by our actions and our wastefulness, it still works, even with us not taking care of it. And so he says, therefore, or excuse me, in verse 21, he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, he says, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I want to stop there, but at the same time, we have to continue and see what happens when we say God doesn't exist. We've got our own thoughts. Here's where it leads. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Does that describe anything that sounds familiar to you? This is the result of rejecting God. God gives us over to what we want. This is what a godless society looks like. You and I live there. He says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, if you're at a spot where you're going, yeah, those homosexuals. Wait, he's also got stuff for the rest of us. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness. He says, sexual immorality. That's anything outside of marriage sexually. Wickedness, covetousness, wanting what's not yours and is somebody else's maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. And he says they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Just in case anything else didn't get you. Disobedience to parents. Undiscerning untrustworthy, 
unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. That's heavy, right? God's judgment is coming upon man. His wrath is coming because of these things. So there's the bad news. What an uplifting message. But here's the deal. It doesn't have to be that way. Because they're assuming that God is like us. God's not going to come. He's not going to judge. He's not keeping his promise. Other people in my life haven't kept their promise. That's probably what God's doing to me too. But verse 8 says, Beloved, do not forget this. God's not like us. God is not like us at all. He says, but they forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he says, beloved, recognize this. God's not like us. And, and there are many who do this math exercise where they're like, well, if God's time is that actually one day is a thousand years, and they go into all this rigmarole trying to figure out what that means. But what I believe, at least in the context of this passage, is that he's saying that God's outside of time. God's not working according to our timetable. 2,000 years to us is forever. But to God, it's, he's not inside time. He, we can't relate to him. 2,000 years is like a drop in the bucket. He doesn't work on our timeline. Time doesn't mean anything to God. He's outside of time. But his timing is always perfect. Simply, it isn't the right time yet. Why hasn't God returned? It's not time. When it's done, he will come. He'll shut it down. He'll close up shop. Everything will be made right. Why is it not time yet? Well, the Lord is not slow or late concerning his promise, is what Peter says. The Lord is patient concerning us. The Lord is desiring all should come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. He gives everybody a chance, and then he gives everybody another chance. And he goes on to say in a verse down here, verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And I considered this for myself. Maybe you will for you. If Jesus had come back before 12 years ago, I would not get to experience or receive his grace. I would have perished in eternal fire rejecting him. But because he was patient, because he was long-suffering, because he's allowed us to continue in the sin-sick world for longer, for another 12 years, many more people have that same story because God was slow to anger. I get to be saved. That's his desire, that all whosoever will will receive life. And in the meantime, everything else can wait. As a parent, you've thought that before, right? Your, parents, your kids have come to you and gone, hey, I need help with this thing. And in that moment, maybe it's not all the time, but in that moment you went, okay, well, this is the most important thing to me right now. Everything else can wait. And I think that that's how the Lord is. 
He knows exactly who's going to receive his salvation. He knows exactly who's going to turn to him from their sin. And he goes, one more, one more. And I don't know when that stops. It is a short period of time. So in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's a, that's a Bible promise to put on your nightstand. Everything, the earth, the heavens, the works that are in the earth are going to burn. The thing that we spend most of our time doing right now that matters the most to us, it's going to be burned up. I don't want that to be discouraging. He still wants us to do it faithfully, but recognize it's temporary. The thing that you are stocking all of your hope and your efforts into, apart from showing people Jesus and, and God saving souls through our testimony, it's going to burn. So remember that in the daily, if you can. He says, um, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, he says, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He doesn't say, What do you want to get done in the next year? What's on your bucket list? He says, What should your character look like? Knowing this, that Jesus will come back, and he will come like a thief in the night. Why does he say that? Because we don't plan for thieves to come. We hope they won't, but they always come when you don't expect them. And that's when the day of the Lord will come. It will come when you do not expect. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, the Son of Man will come at a day and an hour that you do not expect. Only the Father knows that timing. Not even the angels of heaven know when that's going to happen. The day when God's patience and his grace are going to be gone. Okay, it's time. And he'll take us and he'll destroy and he'll purify the earth. He says, looking for and hastening, verse 12, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, be gone fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 34. He says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he will come back unexpectedly. He will be, bring judgment on the heavens and the earth. The earth will be burned up. The works on the earth will be burned up. He says, what manner of persons or character do you want to be caught with? God cares about your heart more than he cares about what you produce. Do you know that? He says, will you be holy? Will you be set apart? Will you be godly? Will you reflect God's character? Will you be looking for the coming of Jesus? Will you even be excited about it? Uh, will you be able to look forward to this sin-tainted earth being destroyed or really purified is what he's going to do. He's not scrapping it. He's turning up the heat so all the dross can be removed. He's purifying it. And will you be longing for the new heavens and the earth where righteousness will dwell? Revelation chapter 21 says this in verse 1 through 8. John the Revelator getting a vision of the future he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned 
for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It's complete. The redemption of the earth, the redemption of mankind, complete on that day. And we should be looking forward to that time and at the same time trying to take as many people with us as possible. Jesus taught us to look forward to this. So, and in, 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 as we close, he says, therefore, again, beloved. He said that three times that I remember. Beloved. He says, therefore, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Uh, there's a teaching in the Bible about waiting for the coming of the Lord. And I think sometimes when we think about waiting, we think about like waiting in line at Walmart, like trying to keep our kids from getting the gum and, and trying to, you know, like, okay, can I go? This lady in front of me has a thousand things. Oh goodness, the coupon book. And we just stand there. And of course, now we get on our phones. We go, okay, well, at least I can read some stuff or peruse the Facebooks. But, but when we wait, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we waste the waiting time. But when God tells us to wait, he says, be diligent and wait, which seems to be an oxymoron. But there's a thing called preparation. In the waiting, we are supposed to be actively waiting for the coming of the Lord, preparing ourselves as a bride would for her groom, right? Getting ready, getting our dress. Now, our dress won't be something that we pay an exorbitant amount of money for. Our, our garment has been given to us by God, putting off the old man and putting on Christ like a garment, this white robe cleaner than any launderer can make it. We will be clothed in Christ. He says, be diligent and wait. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things that are hard to understand. I'm glad that Peter thought Paul was hard to understand. But he says, which untaught and unstable people will twist Paul's doctrine to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There will always be people that their favorite band is twisted scripture. Okay? And so they'll twist scripture to mean something and it doesn't. He says, you therefore, beloved, again, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness and are led astray with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So I have there for you a picture of my daughter because I got the microphone and the PowerPoint. But also because she's ready for school, first day of school. 
She's all pumped. She's got her backpack. She's got her lunchbox. She is ready. She's been ready for weeks. Did school start weeks before that? No. But she was prepared. Why? Because she was excited about it. And I hope that remains. Lucy really likes school at this point. But the reality is she had her backpack ready. She had her gear in there. She was all ready to go because she was excited about it. And knowing that false teachers and scoffers are coming, how are some ways that I can actively prepare for this coming kingdom that God has told me about over and over and over again and has even died to procure so I can go there and be a part of this kingdom? How can I be ready? He says, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Holiness to the Lord. Letting him purify our lives. Being different is not legalism. It is being a follower of Jesus. He changes us. We should be changed. He says also, beware lest you neglect your own salvation. Be diligent to be found in your salvation, abiding in Christ. Because if you're not abiding in Christ, you will be led astray and you will follow wickedness. You won't know the difference between good and bad poison, and fresh water. And then he says, grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How can we do that? Exercise grace. If you don't know how to exercise grace, look at how Jesus did. Follow Jesus' example. Those are his final words. Be diligent to be found by him when he returns. How do you want to be found? What do you want to be caught doing when Jesus returns? If he was coming back today, what do you want to be caught doing? I don't know about you guys, but when my parents went to town and my brother and I were by ourselves, we lived about 10 minutes out of town. So we knew when they called, we had about 10 minutes to get ready for them to come back. Right? But they didn't have to call. Jesus isn't going to call you and say, hey, two days from now, I'm coming. He's just going to come back. And you will be caught doing what you're doing. What do you want to be found doing? This gives me a lot to think about. I don't know about you. So, Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. I thank you for sending John the Baptist who said, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. One crying in the desert. Lord, Jesus came and he said, Prepare your hearts. Father, prepare our hearts prepare our lives, prepare our minds, help us to be diligent. We are diligent people. We're Midwesterners. We get it done. But Father, help us to have your priorities and what we are preparing for. There are everyday things that we have to do as part of life, but Lord, help us to put you first. Help us to be diligent, to be found by you, doing what you have given us to do so that you'll be glorified so that others will sing your praise for eternity. It's for your glory. So, Father, forgive us in the ways that we have focused on the wrong stuff and, and cause us to look at things new. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Lord, I thank you for this extra 12 years since I've been saved, giving opportunities for many others to come to Christ. Lord, if there's anybody here today who said, you know, when I get older, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus. I don't want to lay a trip on them, and I don't want to force anybody's hand, but we are not guaranteed tomorrow. 
So I pray, Father, that they wouldn't leave here today without saying, Lord, I need you. Change me. Make me yours. Give me hope. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.